Good morning, everybody. My name is Brian. If we haven't met yet, I'm one of the pastors here at York Alliance, and I'm so glad that you're here with us, particularly during this Advent series. Uh, the, uh, the music that you just heard and that you heard last week and will hear in the coming weeks, and the art as well, is part of the way that we're engaging the Word over the course of this season. And so we're seeking to hear the voice of God through a variety of different mediums as we ground ourselves in the truth of his word expressed in so many different ways. And so I'm grateful for that. And uh, also, uh, rest assured, that means the sermons will be shorter during the season. So there you go. You get a little bit of both. Um, as part of that, uh, we are stepping into what uh, we've called the Portraits of Advent series, walking through these four names of Jesus that uh, Isaiah the prophet lays out in Isaiah 9-6. Uh, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And last week, Kevin uh, kicked us off with this vision of a wonderful counselor, the one who knows from the beginning before the foundations of the earth all that will happen and all that is happening so that he can direct our paths and guide us. Today, as you've already heard multiple times, we will step into mighty God, what it means that God is mighty. And so to begin that process, I'm going to invite the Abrahamsons up, and they're going to uh, read for us and uh, declare over us, pray over us, uh, the truth of mighty God as they light the Advent candle. So welcome, guys. Good morning. Paul says in the Colossians, uh, to his letter to the Colossians, we look at this son and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this son and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes and holds it together like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Amen. A plan is only ever as good as its ability to be carried out. The most brilliant plan in the world, apart from proper execution, is simply an idea. Thankfully, Jesus is not simply the wonderful counselor, but he is also the mighty God, the one who is abundantly able to do that which, that which he has set out to do. The baby Jesus would grow up to live the life that we could never live, to die the death that we each deserve to die, and to ultimately conquer death and sin forever. Amen. The mighty God candle reminds us that Jesus is completely able. There is nothing that we could ask that is beyond his ability, no problem that is greater than his power. As we face the challenges of daily living, we're reminded that Jesus is the mighty God and that all that he calls us to, he is able to complete. No matter what burdens that we've come with, 
No matter how much we're weighed down, no matter how impossible a situation may seem, Jesus meets us in the midst of where we are and is completely able to handle it. The one who speaks peace into our troubled lives is the very one who spoke a word and created the world from nothing. Jesus is truly all that we need, and he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, you are incredible. Your might and ability is far greater than we can possibly imagine. Forgive us for making our problems and ways seem insurmountable. The God who conquered death and sin. Thank you that that same power is in me. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. I, I don't know if prayers are allowed to be cute, but that was the cutest prayer ever. That was amazing. Wow, that's great. Wow, yeah. Um, I, I want to tell you about the rocky transition I had between being a ninth grade basketball player and moving into the varsity ranks. I don't know if you had a similar transition in uh, your high school years, but um, I, was, uh, I, I was roughly this size as a 14-year-old. I, I mean, vertically, not horizontally, but I, you know, <laughs> it's roughly this size. And so as a 14-year-old, if you're over six feet, that means you're good at basketball by default because you're bigger than everybody else, right? You just stand kind of in the middle and you do your thing. Um, I, because uh, six foot, 14 years old and coordinated never go in the same sentence, uh, I didn't have what they call athletic ability. I uh, simply had height. I was just big, right? And so in order to play basketball, I learned all of the right technical moves. I knew exactly where to be at every Point. I knew um, when I needed to be inside my defender or outside of my defender. I knew uh, how to seal off the lane. I, I knew how to play just the right defense. And I was really, really, really good at rebounding. In fact, my ninth grade year, I was not only the leading rebounder on our team, I was almost double the next leading rebounder on our team. I mean, I was, I was a pro at rebounding. I was good at it, man. I was like, I was up there. And then finished ninth grade, moved into the varsity ranks. So the first time I went to varsity basketball practice, I walked in and went to where the big men go because that's what I was. I always have played power forward or center, so therefore I'm a big man. And I met in person for the first time, face to face, Chip Hare. Now, I should say face to chest because Chip Hare as a senior in high school was 7'1 and 325 pounds. So I was looking right there, right? <laughs> and um, all of a sudden, all the technical moves that I had didn't, didn't work anymore. Like I had this beautiful little baby skyhook. I would like get down on the block. First of all, if I was ever allowed on the block against Chip, it was an act of grace because he could put me anywhere he wanted on the court. But if I did get down to the block and I'd throw up that little baby skyhook, he would just go, ha and just knock it down, right? Like, he's 7'1". Like, he almost touched the rim when he put his arm up. Like, it was ridiculous. And, and so I would, I would go down, but I thought, well, at least I could box him out, right? I could at least get a rebound. So I get in front of him and I push him back and I have perfect position and the ball comes out and he literally just reaches over my head and takes it. Like, like it's not even a foul because it's, he's that big. And I quit basketball at that point. That was it. I was done. Chip was the end for me. That was, that was, that was all of it. Because here's the thing. You can have all the right technical ability. You can have the right plan 
but it all relies on your ability to execute it. Or as uh, that great prophet of our time, Iron Mike Tyson, said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Yes, <laughs> I have quoted Mike Tyson for the one and only time that I intend to in a sermon. The, the challenge of the wonderful counselor, God, the one who knows the beginning from the end, who understands from the beginning of time the way that history is going, is that he can have a great plan, but if he can't execute the plan, it doesn't matter. And so if all Isaiah said is that Jesus would come and he would know the beginning from the end, Jesus would come and he would understand the way that history is moving. He would understand your life and my life. But he can't do anything about it. It doesn't matter. But Wonderful Counselor was not the end of the story. Isaiah said that Jesus would come and be the Wonderful Counselor and the Mighty God. The one who is capable of executing the plan that he's put in place. What I want to look at today are three aspects of that might. What does it look like when the might of God comes over our lives? I want to look at what a vision of his might looks like to us, what the impact of his might is, and ultimately and probably the most difficult piece, the invitation of his might for us. What's it mean for us to step into that might? We could look at a lot of different places in the scriptures, literally hundreds of places in the scriptures uh, highlight the power of God. As uh, Ethan's picture represents, uh, there's not just the creation story, God hovering over the waters, but uh, the waters throughout the scriptures at places like the parting of the Red Sea and the parting of the Jordan River, uh, God shows dominance. God, uh, through the person of Jesus, calms the storm uh, at the, on the Sea of Galilee, all displays of his power and glory. But I want us to ground ourselves this morning in one specific place in the letter of Colossians that the Abrahamsons read earlier. So if you have a Bible... Would you open to Colossians chapter 1? We're going to look at 15 through 23. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. And if you don't own a hard copy of the scriptures, I would love for you to take that one home. That's an early Christmas present. We'd be glad to replace it, but we would love for you to have a copy of the Bible. I'm going to read uh, a little bit and talk a little bit as we uh, walk through this, but would uh, you first join me in prayer as we settle our hearts before the Lord? Jesus, you are great and greatly to be praised. And so as we come into your presence, opening your word with the time that we have left, would you speak to us as you have already spoken through music and words, lyrics, through art and uh, the development of that art. Now, God, would you speak to us through your word that our ears and eyes and hearts would be open to you. Guard my words that they would come from you alone, that anything that comes from my strength would fall to the ground and be forgotten, that anything that comes from you would remain, that your word would take root in our hearts. And so speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want us to start with what it looks like to have a vision of the might of God, because it's tough for us as humans to get our heads around what it means that God is mighty. Let me just read a couple verses for you at the beginning of this section of Paul's letter, starting in verse 15. Paul says, 
He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now that sounds glorious, but honestly, we can't even get our heads around what Paul just said. He just said that every single thing is created by him and for him. So everything on earth points to his glory. So that's the sun and the moon and the stars and the water and all of that, but it's also like stink bugs and millipedes. It's all of it, right? It's like, it's the, it's the car you drove in with. It's the phone in your pocket. It's the food that you'll eat today. All of those things are made through him and are meant to glorify him, to, to point toward him. There's this disconnect that we wrestle with because we can't even get our heads all the way around that. Um, we tend to see that the, the mighty God has created all of these spiritual things, things like uh, glorification and justification. Those are glorious doctrines that come from God. But when we get to the practical tangible, it's harder for us to imagine that God is behind those things. Um, things like our jobs and our, our relationships, they, they don't seem to immediately be tied back to the God who has created all things and in whom all things hold together. And the big problem with that is that we usually don't wrestle with the spiritual things. We wrestle with the tangible, practical things. And so when we have a problem with justification, we'll bring that to God. But when we have a problem with our neighbor, we deal with that. We have a problem with our finances, we deal with that. We, we miss the connection to the fact that the mighty God is over everything. We need to, through discipline and habit and practice, keep before us a vision of how mighty and glorious God is. I want to share with you a quote. This is possibly my favorite quote ever from anyone, and it's not Dallas Willard. He's coming, but it's not Dallas Willard. This is a, a lady named Annie Dillard in Teaching a Stone to Talk. She says this, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. I love this vision because it, it wakes us up. It shakes us out of the reality of just singing songs and declaring things and saying words and, and missing the fact that there is a mighty, powerful God who has created all things and is in all things. And by his word, Hebrews says, hold all things together. We miss that. And for most of us, we have a vision of God that's much, much, much smaller. Now comes Dallas Willard. Dallas says in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, that for all the vast influence that he has exercised on human history, we have to say 
that Jesus is usually seen as a frankly pathetic individual who lived and still lives on the margins of real life. What lies at the heart of the astonishing disregard of Jesus is a simple lack of respect for him. He is not seriously considered or presented as a person of great ability. What then can devotion or worship mean if simple respect is not included in it? Not much. What Willard's saying is, we, when we think about God, we tend to think that he's kind and loving, and um, we, we tend to think of these, this kind of warm, fuzzy, soft being, but we don't think power. We don't think really, really smart. We don't think, like, he is able to do anything. In fact, because of our culture, kind and loving tends to equate with soft, honestly. And so the vision that we have of Jesus far too often is shrunk down to a, a Middle Eastern man who was really nice and sacrificed for us. The problem with that is Paul just told us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So if that's the way we see Jesus, that's the way we see God as well. I want to give you one more quote. Um, this is from a guy named Mark Galley, and uh, it's probably going to sting a little bit. I just want to warn you up front, but I think it's helpful for us to process. Galley says this, Jesus seems so nice, we can't imagine why he doesn't answer all of our prayers or why he allows evil to run free. Maybe he's not really in charge after all. But then suddenly our faith is bolstered by an inspirational bestseller about the best life or the purpose-driven life or the border-expanding life. And we're ready to be patient with Jesus a little longer, as long as he keeps us feeling good about ourselves and optimistic about tomorrow. This Jesus may be a comfort, but in the end, he's a bore. He's the product of our culture's paltry imagination. He's a Jesus without substance, a mere shadow of the Jesus who roamed the hills of Galilee. He said it stings because for many of us, there's a deep reality in that, where we miss the glory and the grandeur of God. What it means for us to have a vision of the mighty God is for us to be able to, as an act of imagination and engagement, think through as much as our human brains can, can pull together the majesty and the glory of the God of the universe. And so what does that look like? Practically, what would we be thinking about? Well, let me give you a few. Paul is going to continue in uh, verse 18. He says this, and he, speaking of Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So what do we see about God? Well, there's a couple things. There's a lot we could pull. Let me just give you three that jump out. One of them is this. The God of the universe sees and knows all of the details about all of our lives all at one time. He holds it all together. Like, just allow your mind to imagine what it would look like to hold everybody's stuff together. 
Like a lot of you, uh, my life runs based on my Google Calendar. So I have a Google Calendar. When I open it up, um, on my iPad, all of my meetings and obligations will show up in green blocks. So I look at the calendar, and there's just a whole bunch of green blocks. Now, if I, if I want to see what Amanda's doing, I'll hit her calendar, and then a couple red blocks show up. And so then I can see her things as well. If I want to see Tia's calendar, I, I look at the brown ones. If I want to see Ethan's calendar, it's too bad. He's too lazy to put a calendar on Google, so I don't get it. It's the way it works. It's just the way it goes. Um, so, but, but I can, you know, I can start to see some other people in my life. I can layer that in with the, like the York Alliance master calendar so I can see what's going on at church at the same time. So I can see these things together. But this crazy thing happens sometimes when I walk into the front office. Now, some of you know uh, Belinda and Ree manage the front office to kind of keep us all under control. And there's this crazy thing that they do. And it makes me honestly really nervous when I walk in because they will sometimes have the Google Calendar up and they will literally have the entire staff on the calendar at the same time. Like there's, there's 14 of us with all of our calendars plus the York Alliance Master Calendar plus the Facilities ca Calendar and it's all on there. It looks like a box of crayons puked all over the this computer screen. I mean, it's awful. It's like I walk in, I look at it and I have to go out and like breathe deep and not have a nervous breakdown. Like it's like too much going on. Now I want you to imagine, that, like take that, that's just our staff. God holds all of our stuff together. Like us plus roughly a trillion or so, right? Like all of us. And God holds that all together. The God of the universe is able to manage all of those things, all of those details, all of that information. And it's not just that. Beyond that, we can't do anything of real lasting eternal impact without him. He's the one all around the globe, in the church at all times and all places, who is doing the work that lasts. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Here in verse 18, uh, Paul says that uh, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might, have the, he might be preeminent. Um, that word beginning, we tend to think of as start, but actually uh, the, the Greek word there is not start. The Greek word is source or supply. What Paul's saying is, he is the one who gives the church, us, everything of value. That if we do something that we do, it will disappear. If we can accomplish it in our strength, it's just that, something that we can accomplish in our strength. But when we tap into the power of the mighty God who desires to be at work in the church, now there are things that last there are things that actually move forward and move the kingdom forward. God's doing that. He's not just doing that here. He's doing that all around the world at all times. So he doesn't just hold all of our calendars together. He's literally doing the work that actually makes a difference right now at all times around the world. And one more. In verse 15, he says that he is the image of the invisible God. And in verse 19, he says, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Jesus is the container for the creator God who is beyond our imagination. And the fullness of God finds itself fully expressed in the person of Jesus. 
which means the way that you think about Jesus is incredibly important for the way that you follow God. Because how you think about Jesus is how you see God. And how you think about God is translated to the person of Jesus. The mighty God is bigger than we can get our heads all the way around. But if we can dwell in the impact of that reality, we start to get a little taste. Soren Kierkegaard uh, has a collection of spiritual writings called Provocations, and he makes this statement. Woe to the person who smoothly, flirtatiously, commandingly, and convincingly preaches some soft, sweet something which is supposed to be Christianity. Woe to the person who makes miracles reasonable. Oh, the time wasted on the enormous work of making Christianity so reasonable and in trying to make it so relevant. What's Kierkegaard saying? He's saying, like, th this is a supernatural faith, intended to be a supernatural faith. So stop trying to explain it away. Recognize that at this season of all seasons, we're, we're talking about the God of the universe who created all things becoming an impoverished baby who can't talk or walk or control his bladder. Like, are you serious? This is, this is not logical. This is mystery. And it's intended to be mystery. And so as we come into the presence of a mighty God, there should be a, a, a mysterious sense of the power of God that we can't quite fully get our arms around. But that God, who is mighty, powerful, able to do all things, also invites us. And that's where I want to wrap up today. So how do we respond to his might? Well, the first thing we need to hear is that his might is not primarily focused on making me better. We tend to have a very self-focused view of the, the pursuit of Christ, and we tend to see God by default as the divine self-help guru who's kind of fixing us. And it's not that God doesn't change us. Paul makes really clear in Romans chapter 12 that the power of God transforms us from the inside out. In fact, that's a real clear evidence of the power of the work of God. That's not his primary thing. His primary thing is him, his glory, his goodness. This is a story that's not about us. It's a story about him. And so what it means for us to enter into that story is to follow him, not invite him to follow us. Let me try to explain that. There are two errors that we run into with the idea of lordship. The first error is this. Jesus can't handle my stuff. Like, I know that he can save me. I know that I am, uh, I'm secure and that ultimately I will spend eternity in heaven with him because I've submitted myself to him, but I'm not sure he can manage the stuff I have going on tomorrow. Like, my boss is a big deal, and it's going to be tricky. Like, my finances are a mess. I just don't know if he can handle it. Like, the relational stress in my life is just too much. He can't possibly. And so, in a, in a way that almost sounds foolish if you say it out loud... That uh, in a way that says, God can handle my eternity, but I don't think he's big enough to handle tomorrow. One of the problems we have with lordship is we think God can't handle us. We're too much for him. But the other error is the flip side of that. 
It's not that God can't handle us. It's that I can handle him. Meaning, as I approach God, the, the dignity that he's given to me to make decisions actually put me in position over top of him. This is what you hear a lot in the evangelical church when you hear about the distinction between Jesus as Savior and Lord. This idea that at some point in time, I prayed a prayer that allowed Jesus to save me. I gave him the right to save me, but I decided that I didn't want him to be Lord of my life yet. I'm going to wait a while, and then at some point in time that's convenient for me, I'm going to allow him to be the Lord. First of all, who's God in that scenario? Me, right? Not him. And second of all, if he's capable of saving you, and if you're willing to be honest about how messed up you are, you should be down on your face worshiping him, following him anywhere he leads. Because if he's strong enough to do that, he's strong enough to deal with anything that you have in your life. Lordship is about turning all of our hearts to him. If he is the mighty God, then the invitation is a complete following. Frederica Matthews Green is an Orthodox scholar and writer, and uh, she has uh, some, uh, some excellent words to this. She, sa she says, Jesus didn't come to save us just from the penalty of our sins. He came to save us from our sins. Now, today, if we will only respond to the challenge and let him. The Lord does not love us for our good parts and pass over the rest. He died for the bad parts and will not rest until they are put right. We must stop thinking of God as infinitely indulgent. We must begin to grapple with the scary and exhilarating truth that he is infinitely holy and that he wants the same for us. As that lands on you, let me follow it up with a parallel quote shorter from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He said this, the command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. As we submit ourselves to the mighty God, he actually starts to change us. And so in a way that's completely counterintuitive, the invitation to the mighty God is not all about us. And yet, the clearest tangible evidence of the might and power of God is for you and I to devote ourselves to him completely. And then over weeks and months and years, look back and see how he changes us. Because what starts to happen is you see character show up where there were deficiencies before. You see Jesus show up where you were there before. You see behaviors start to change. You see attitudes start to change. You see desires start to change. And what happens over a period of time is the mighty God who's able to do anything changes us because he desires to make us like him. Maybe the strangest part of the might and power of God is that Jesus was at his most powerful. The moment when the power of God was highlighted the, the most clearly 
was the time that he looked the weakest to us. When Jesus was stretched out on a Roman cross with his human life bleeding out of him, literally, cosmically, he was conquering sin and death and hell and the curse was being broken. The thing that could never be changed. For thousands of years, the curse had reigned and Jesus, at what looked to be his weakest, was conquering. And so when we come to say that Paul's letter to the Roman Christians is maybe the greatest treatise on the might of God, the glory of God. And Paul spends the first 11 chapters of that letter just unpacking the greatness of God in history and in our lives and in the midst of our sin and in the midst of his plan. He lays it all out. And at the end of chapter 11, he gets to this place where it just overflows out of him. And it's that overflow that I want to leave you with as you go out into the world this week. And so receive these words. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. As you go, go in the grace and peace of Jesus. Have a great week. Thanks for being here. My week to share my song with you all. And I was given a couple minutes to just explain a little bit about my process. So I went ahead and wrote it down so I didn't babble. Uh, so I'm going to be reading from my phone. But this is, this is what I have to share with you all. Hearing that my theme was Mighty God, at first I thought, yeah, of course I can do this. But as I pondered the Advent story and what Isaiah meant by calling Jesus Mighty God, I suddenly felt like I had nothing I could say. How could I capture the long-awaited hope of heaven coming to earth as a helpless baby and being called our mighty God. Seriously, not a line or lyric sufficient enough came to my mind. I spent weeks in the scriptures, in references, and asking people I knew what they thought when they heard the name mighty God. I had so many ideas swirling in my head, but absolutely nothing came out, at least nothing that didn't sound like my two-year-old had written it. Like Abby mentioned last week, this has been a bit of a painful process. And then a line that unfortunately was not mine came to my mind. Long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. And suddenly, I was on a mission to try and capture what I could only imagine was one of the single most beautiful instances of hope and relief. Our Savior come to earth for us and for all eternity. The weary world rejoices. So I have clumsily and with fragility put together what I think I may have sung had I been there to experience our mighty God coming to us the one the scriptures promised, the one who fulfilled the words 
of the prophets and changed the course of mankind for the rest of its days. So many of us have needed to cling to the hope that only Christ can bring this year. I know that our family certainly has. And for many here today, this has been a year of trials, of loss, of health scares, of new life, transition, and many other circumstances that have called us to lean on the promised and proven strength of our mighty God. And so this song was written with each of you in mind as well. Good morning, your clients. Um, I love that they have me up here right after that and expect me not to be like crying the whole time. But <laughs> um, my name is Ethan Cannell, uh, if you don't know me. And I had the privilege of drawing a piece for our Names of God Advent series. Uh, they handed me a live mic this week, which begs the question why my dad wrote a sermon, because they probably won't have time. But I'll try to keep it short. <laughs> so as I sat down to work on this piece, um, I had been listening to a myriad of podcasts and commentaries on creation narratives and the narrative of Genesis. And I was struck by the fact that in all the creation narratives of the ancient Near East, there were these two characters. There were the chaotic waters, and there was the god of whatever religion the narrative was. And in every other creation narrative, the god and these waters had this epic battle to try to establish dominance. And so in the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptian narratives, there was this battle between the God of their religion and the water just so that creation could start, so that the chaos could be subdued and the God could reign over the world. But in our narrative, the story starts with our God hovering over the waters. He's already stronger than the waters from the beginning. And so that's the image that I tried to portray with this piece. And so as I was drawing it and just thinking and praying, I was struck by the fact that such an old image is still so applicable today. We don't live in an agrarian culture like the ancient Israelites, so water isn't quite as poignant of an image as, as it may be for them but we all have chaos that we battle every day. Whether it's loneliness and depression and anxiety, or it's that job that doesn't get, you don't get paid enough for, or that health issue that you just can't beat. We all battle chaos every day, and we aren't strong enough to win that battle. But our God was stronger than that battle from the beginning. And not only was he stronger than it, he loves us enough to step into our mess, our chaos, and fight on our behalf for the battles that we can't win. And so that's what I tried to portray with this piece, Mighty God. Thank you. <laughs> 